Merry Christmas, everyone. I've got a lot of thank yous to say. I'm thrilled we've had a great year for the podcast, even in the midst of the pandemic. This Christmas special is going to be more of a ramble through a few interesting topics that are interlinked. It is sometimes whimsical and sometimes dark. Before we get going, I'll announce the winner of our review competition. The honour of your nation was at stake. Who rose to the challenge? Who did their country proud? Well, the winning nation was, by a long way, the United States of America. You can all raise an eggnog with pride and chant USA. Thank you, my friends. This is quite a long show, so I'll read the actual reviews sometime in the new year. But I am thrilled by the kind words. I'd also like to welcome new patron, Marissa, who joins the ranks of the respectable governesses. I'd also like to thank both Herb and Russell for their kind donations. Your support is really appreciated and will go towards books for next year's shows. For me, one of the best bits of Christmas is the food. I'm one of those people cursed to revel in food. The sublime flavours wash over my taste buds. The textures enchant and the warm comfort I get from it is a delight. So for most of the year, I have to struggle to be careful. Not at Christmas, though. I can indulge reasonably guilt-free. The delicious homemade nut-free mince pies. The hot chocolates. The after-dinner whiskey. The after-eight mints for breakfast. The roast potatoes. The sausages wrapped in bacon. For the supreme treat, if I can find and afford them, I get high-quality nut-free sweets. What could be better? than watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer reruns eating sweets at Christmas. For the Victorians, food, of course, was a key part of the feast. The various foods and ways of serving it changed throughout the Victorian era. At the start, roast beef and plum pudding were the great staples of Victorian Englishness. To be English was to eat the roast beef of Old England. It was a custom since time immemorial. Many Victorian recipes were designed to impress and show the opulence of the table and the hosts. The first Christmas card had a Victorian meal in the centre, with a fat, happy family seated around the roast beef. Naturally, they are drinking wine, including one child, who is being given a good chug of wine by an adult. To complete the picture, outside the gathering are poor orphans being fed bread and given a blanket to illustrate charity of the season. The second ever Christmas card, designed in 1848, was even more elaborate, with a panel of dancers and a panel showing an enormous banquet, and a panel with ice skaters, and, inevitably, a panel with the poor merrily doffing their hats in gratitude for being allowed to queue up for the charity scraps from a well-dressed lady. It makes the rich feel all warm to give out charity once a year, rather than having to deal with the systemic issues that cause poverty. And, as you know, this was a constant battlefield during the Victorian era. You already know about Dickens' references to food, if you've listened to this show for a while, and I've often commented on how food was a pivotal driver for emigration and empire. So it shouldn't be a surprise that it was so central to the new-style Victorian Christmas. Food, glorious food. Who could resist a traditional Victorian Christmas cake? What would they have been like? Well, we should really start with the doyen of cooking, the woman who started the modern cookery book system, Mrs Beaton, and her book of household management. Incidentally, don't confuse Mrs Beaton's books with the Beaton's Christmas Annual, which was the work of her husband, Samuel Beaton, and which premiered Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Mrs. Beaton was in many ways the founder of the mid-Victorian era middle class. Her book, Mrs. Beaton's Guide to Household Management, was published in 1861. So a lot of what I'm about to talk about is really the mid-Victorian era, which was in many ways what we think of as the high Victorian period. It contained not only the recipes, also the techniques for the perfect running of a household. 
it was probably up there with the Bible and the Queen's regulations as quoted by the regimental sergeant major on parade, there could be no higher authority. Her views on turkey, for instance, were strict. Quote, a noble dish is turkey, roast or boiled, a Christmas dinner with the middle class of this empire would scarcely be a Christmas dinner at all without a turkey. And we can hardly imagine an object of greater envy than is presented by a respected portly paterfamilias carving at the season devoted to good cheer and genial charity his own fat turkey and carving it well. The only art consists, as in the carving of a goose, in getting from the breast as many fine slices as possible. And all must have remarked the very great difference in the larger number of people whom a good carver will find slices for, and the comparatively few that a bad carver will succeed in serving. As we have stated in both the carving of the duck and goose, the carver should commence cutting slices close to the wing from two to three, then proceed upwards towards the ridge of the breastbone. This is not the usual plan, but in practice will be found the best. The breast is the only part of which is looked on as fine in a turkey, the legs being very seldom cut off and eaten at the table. They are usually removed to the kitchen, where they are taken off, as here marked, to appear only in a form which seems to have a special attraction at a bachelor's supper table, we mean deviled. Served in this way, they are especially liked and relished, end quote. If you fancy those leftover deviled turkey legs, her recipe is very simple. Quote, Remove the skin from the turkey, crisscross with deep cuts, sprinkle well with seasoning and a little cayenne, if required, very hot. Spread with mixed mustard or French mustard, pressing well into the cuts and leave for several hours. Grill 8 to 12 minutes until crisp and brown. Spread with small pieces of butter mixed with cayenne and serve immediately from the dinner tables in Doncaster to the messes of Madras, to the plates of the engineers in Port Moody, her writ was law. Many a frantic housewife or captain's lady turned to Mrs Beaton to decide the exact way to serve a meal. Sadly, Mrs Beaton herself had a short and sometimes hard life with bouts of great tragedy. She died at the young age of 29, yet her name is legend, and not just in Victorian history circles. Her book, is also a foundation work for cookery and household management. It was not an imaginative work. Instead, it did what the Victorians truly loved. It systemised cooking. A standard layout with standard measure and clear commentaries, plus the cost of ingredients, when they were in season and the number of servings the dish would produce. When you look at a recipe now, you are seeing cooking as she ordered it. Her aim was clear. She wanted to make sure the domestic sphere was given the importance and regularity it needed, so that the running of a household was seen for what it was, an enormous feat of organisation and effort. She was aware that the domestic sphere was in many ways a new thing, and was a gendered space, in a way it hadn't been before the Industrial Revolution. After all, when men worked in their house or in the fields, the women and children were frequently there with them, contributing to labour, and the idea of the home as an entity was a barely recognised concept. The move of work outside the house and the death of the cottage industries in the Industrial Revolution created a new sphere, the working class and middle class home, a place where paid work wasn't done unless you were a servant. In the Victorian era, attitudes to women were changing with the enormous growth of the middle class. The middle class woman was not supposed to work as a sign of success was having enough money not to need to work. As historian Tosh said in his fascinating book, A Man's Place, quote, the most critical precondition of middle class domesticity was the withdrawal of the wife from the direct involvement 
in the productive work of the household. The idea of a marital working partnership was virtually at an end among the Victorian bourgeoisie. Once the breadwinning was removed from the home, it soon became accepted that wives should have nothing to do with it. For as long as work could be represented as something which all members of the household performed, the wife had been able to take her part without loss of status. Once work was located outside the home, the implications of intruding in the public sphere and perhaps foregoing her husband's protection were disturbing. End quote. It is a strange mix of patriarchal oppression and aspirational freedom. This was a conscious aping of the nobility, where no one truly worked, but instead chose an occupation to pass the time. The role of the middle-class woman was difficult and undefined at first. Idleness for the Victorians was obviously a sin and a character failing, so to just loaf around was unacceptable. Nor was it possible in practical terms. A middle-class mistress was expected to keep her servants at arm's length. Outside the nobility and the super-rich, a house required management, both financial and in terms of personnel. The super-rich would delegate control to the butler and the housekeeper. Each of these would have a strict hierarchy of servants beneath them, often a lot given the size of many country estates. Queen Victoria had a virtual army toiling away in her service, typically in a disorganised mess that drove Prince Albert to swing between fury and despair. When we get back to the royal couple next year, we will explore Albert's explosive attempts at introducing a rational system of staff management at Buckingham Palace. The rich were also likely to have separate valets, chambermaids, and for the especially lucky, a mayong chef instead of a cook. For the luckiest of all, not just a mayong chef, but a French chef. Naturally, the great estates usually had a steward too, who was responsible for managing it whilst the master was away. In case you've ever wondered, a valet is separate from a butler. He is the master's personal assistant, handling not just personal services, but also finances, and perhaps even shaving. The relationship was one of personal service, and the valet could be called the gentleman's gentleman. The butler was in charge of the male staff, except for the valet, but in small households, he also acted as valet himself. Jeeves and Worcester fans should therefore note that Jeeves is a valet, not a butler, and hence had a slightly higher social standing. For the middle class, this enormous army was unavailable. Instead, the typical household would make do with a cook, a housemaid and a parlour maid. Whatever the size of house or estate, the housekeeper was the head of the female staff and addressed as Mrs. whether or not she was married. The only exceptions were the governess, who reported directly to the mistress of the house, and the nurses, who reported to the governess. In practice, the cook would be semi-autonomous and would run the kitchen staff. Mrs. Beaton set out her views on the matters of servants in her preface. Quote, As with the commander of an army or the leader of an enterprise, so it is with the mistress of a house. Her spirit will be seen through the whole establishment and just in proportion as she performs her duties intelligently and thoroughly, so will her domestics follow her path. Of all these acquirements, which much more particularly belong to the feminine character, there are none which take higher rank in our estimation than such as enter into a knowledge of household duties. For on these are perpetually dependent the happiness, comfort and well-being of a family. In this opinion, we are borne out by the author of The Vicar of Wakefield, who says, The modest virgin, the prudent wife, the careful matron, are much more serviceable in life than petticoated philosophers, blustering heroines of Arago queens, she who makes her husband and children happy, who reclaims the one from vice and trains up the other to virtue, is much a greater character than ladies described in romances, whose whole occupation is to murder mankind with shafts from their quiver or their eyes. End quote. 
This is especially interesting, as her husband was actually a believer in equal rights for women and encouraged her career. I can't read anything by Mrs. Beaton without hearing it in a sharp Mary Poppins voice in my head, very much spit-spot children, which is ironic, as Mrs. Beaton was actually very young, had a very tragic life, and died early as a result of an infection after childbirth. The Victorian middle-class home was hard to manage, with no electricity, refrigeration, or easy-to-use ovens. Just cooking was a major challenge. Around the new disposable capital, the Victorian era, and the new jobs, new facilities sprung up that seemed to either increase risk of vice, such as the gin palaces, or divert much-needed household funds, such as the theatre or gentlemen's club. Mrs. Beaton said, quote, What moved me in the first instance to attempt to work like this was the discomfort and suffering which I had seen brought upon men and women by household mismanagement. I have always thought there is no more fruitful source of family discontent than a housewife's badly cooked dinners and untidy ways. Men are now so well served out of doors, at their clubs, well-ordered taverns and dining houses, that in order to compete with these attractions, a mistress must be thoroughly acquainted with the theory and practice of cookery, as well as be perfectly conversant with all the other arts of making and keeping a comfortable home. End quote. There's also a slight hint of insecurity in the new role. What if the man chose to be a bachelor? content with his job and the pleasures of the London clubs. Many men did. If it continued, the Victorians worried. Could the nation run out of eligible men? If so, was there a risk that labour might become scarce? That men might lose their ambition with no family or children to provide for? If they remained unmarried and childless, what motive did they have to better themselves? What if they became decadent, like Gibbons? had called the late Romans, who would uphold the empire if men didn't commit to families and ambition instead of choosing an easy life? Or worse, might they remain savage and untamed, content in a bachelor's squalor, inevitably doomed to sink into vice, and worse, eating deviled turkey legs whenever they fancied? This isn't the time for the wholesale study of Victorian gender relations, but it is worth bearing in mind Large parts of the Victorian era had themes of various crises of masculinity. Not just about whether men were manly and physically tough enough, but whether they were civilised enough. Whether they were merely beasts had to be kept in check by the church, the charity worker, their upper-class betters, and middle-class women. What if they actually stopped getting married, and worse, stopped being good Christians? Could men be trusted with freedom? What if they became degenerates? Or worse, intellectuals and poets? Shaftesbury gave a withering statement. Quote, there can be no security to society, no honour, no prosperity, no dignity at home, no nobleness of attitude towards foreign nations unless the strength of the people rests upon the purity and firmness of the domestic system. End quote. So there you are. Marriage and domestic order are national defence issues and the bedrock for civilization itself, whether it was repressive and enforced an unhealthy level of conformity was not considered important. Although many people from all classes and backgrounds railed against this kind of oppression. How to create this order, though? Mrs. Beaton had the answer. Order and discipline in the home each gender responsible for its own spheres, yet expected to function as two halves of the whole. Her book is remarkable. It is a source for so much that we know about the Victorian middle class. Her instructions and insights ranged from how to hire servants, to how to treat friends, to how to structure the day. She was conscious that the aim was not to drive the joy from people's lives, but to provide a structure through which the complex running of the house could be made to work, and that, quote, to be a good housewife, 
does not necessarily imply an abandonment of proper pleasures or amusing recreation, and we think it the more necessary to express this, as the performance of the duties of a mistress may, to some minds, perhaps seem to be incompatible with the enjoyment of life. Let us, however, now proceed to describe some of those home qualities and virtues which are necessary to the proper management of a household, and then point out the plan which may be the most profitably pursued for the daily regulation of its affairs. The goal was to create such a well-ordered system that there was plenty of time left over for the Victorian housewife to enjoy relaxation. Remember, we can be in danger of overthinking things when we look back at the past. Many people just wanted a simple way to cook and run a house and turned to the first decent cookbook in history. She wasn't original. A friend of hers had told her bluntly she wasn't a good cook, so she should just take other people's recipes and use those, which she did. But creating a layout and system that was unique and hers. Of course, early rising, cleanliness, frugality and economy were absolute commands. Splashing the cash or laying around in bed because you were rich were not going to meet her standards and might have caused many a strict aunt to raise an eyebrow. Friends were to be chosen carefully and gossip was to be avoided. A mistress was also expected to be of good temper and determined. Her habits were felt to set the tone for the servants. If she lazed in bed, they would surely become lazy too. You might want to bear this in mind. To Mrs Beaton and her readers, it was an absolute given that the house would have servants who would do the grunt work. The mistress might extol the virtues of cleanliness, but she'd hardly mop her own floors. So when Christmas came around and the mistress had a huge amount to do, well, her servants had a damn sight more and with much less freedom and comfort. The mistress did have Christmas duties, according to Miss Beaton. Quote, In December, the principal household duty lies in preparing for the creature comforts of those near and dear to us so as to meet old Christmas with a happy face, a contented mind and a full larder and in stoning the plums, washing the currants, cutting the citron, beating the eggs, and mixing the pudding. A housewife is not unworthily greeting the genial season of all good things, end quote. Honestly, I could feel genial if all I was doing was cutting the lemons and mixing a pudding, but in reality, she means that is on top of everything the house normally required. The full larder alone was a challenge in the days before supermarkets and refrigerators. Food was highly seasonal, so onions, beef and much more had to be carefully sourced. The pleasure of a well-stocked larder included the knowledge that the household were rich and not going to starve on the streets. Fortunately, Mrs Beaton has a recipe for every occasion. Mincemeat for mince pies for regular guests. Excellent mincemeat for mince pies when the mistress wanted to impress. To make regular mince pies, she instructed, quote, Ingredients, two pounds of raisins, three pounds of currants, one and a half pounds of lean beef, three pounds of beef sweat, two pounds of moist sugar, two ounces of citron, two ounces of candied lemon peel, two ounces of candied orange peel, one small nutmeg, one pottle of apples, the rind of two lemons, the juice of one, half a pint of brandy. Method. Stone and cut the raisins once or twice across, but do not chop them. Wash, dry and pick the currants free from stalks and grit. Mince the beef and sweat, taking care that the latter is chopped very fine. Slice the citron and candied peel. Grate the nutmeg and pare, core and mince the apples. Mince the lemon peel. Strain the juice. When all the ingredients are thus prepared, mix them well together, adding the brandy when the other things are well blended. Press the whole into a jar, carefully exclude the air, and the mincemeat will be ready for use in a fortnight. To make excellent mince pies, the recipe skipped the beef and sweet pudding. Quote, ingredients, three large lemons, three large apples, one pound of stoned raisins, one pound of currants, one pound of sweat, half a pound of moist sugar, 
one ounce of sliced candied citron, one ounce of sliced candied orange peel, and the same quantity of lemon peel, one teacup of brandy, two spoons of orange marmalade. Method. Grate the rinds of the lemons. Squeeze out the juice and strain it. Boil the remainder of the lemons until tender enough to pulp or chop very finely. Then add to this pulp the apples, which should be baked, and their skins and cores removed. Put in the remaining ingredients, one by one, and, as they are added, mix everything very thoroughly together. Put the mincemeat into a stone jar with a closely fitting lid, and in a fortnight you'll be ready for use. End quote. That's quite a lot of work, but it wasn't like the Victorian housewife could just go to the shops and buy pre-made easily. Besides, even if she could, why what would people think? Surely it must mean she was idly wasting her days, probably drinking. Who wouldn't marry to that fellow? More interested in theology than his husbandly duties and manly pursuits. What an example for the children, who are quite wild. Perhaps best not to invite them to tea and find another man more suitable for the position at the vicarage. Because the Victorians loved to judge people a lot. Jokes aside, many middle-class Victorian women simply didn't have the skills to carry out the household tasks. So poor quality servants would cause chaos. If that sounds flippant, it isn't. Imagine how you would feel having to make a full five-course meal with no refrigeration or electricity, including homemade cakes, pastries, stuffing, stocks and a whole turkey. Still, the food shops were open even on Christmas Day. Grocers, fruitiers and butchers were all open for people to buy things for the feast that night. As the decades passed, some of the complex problems were offloaded to the mass market. Then there was one of the great cornerstones of Christmas, apart from games like Snapdragon, the Christmas cake. Not to be confused with the dense and flammable as pudding. As Mrs. Beaton says, quote, Ingredients. Five cupfuls of flour, one teacupful of melted butter, one teacup of cream, one teacup of treacle, one teacup of moist sugar, two eggs, half an ounce of powdered ginger, half a pound of raisins, one teaspoonful of bicarbonate of soda, one tablespoon of vinegar. Method. Melt the butter sufficiently warm to melt it, but do not allow it to oil. Put the flour into a basin, add to it the sugar, ginger and raisins, which should be stoned and cut into small pieces. When these dry ingredients are thoroughly mixed, stir in the batter, cream, treacle and well-whisked eggs and beat the mixture for a few minutes. Dissolve the soda in the vinegar, add it to the dough and be particular that these latter ingredients are well incorporated with the others. Put the cake into a buttered mould or tin, place it in a moderate oven immediately and bake it for one and three quarter to two and a quarter hours. Average cost of one shilling sixpence. End quote. She makes it all sound so simple. The cost is most reasonable and only three pence more than her recipe for an economical cake. The Christmas cake in many ways grew out of the older Twelfth Night cake, but really the mince pies and Christmas cake required the development of steamships and railroads to bring the price of dried fruit down enough for the masses to enjoy. Bear that in mind when you complain about Christmas being too commercialised. It has always been driven by market forces and much of what you think of as traditional was either a product of Victorian commercialisation, industry and technology or Victorians inventing new traditions and hoping they stuck. Many noticed the trend for huge posters advertising Christmas presents, replete with children begging parents to buy the item in question. Santa Claus in his more modern form wasn't really part of the British tradition till the 1880s when elements of old father time were fused with the American version of St Nicholas. But you could see the outline of a lot of our modern Christmas as the decades passed. After all, the concept of rewarding good children and punishing bad ones is thoroughly Victorian. As author Judith Flanders notes in her excellent book, Consuming Passions, there was even the delightfully titled 
but frankly morbid, children's annual, The Christmas Tree, a book of instructions and amusement for all young people, which infamously included an essay called The Vanity of All Earthly Things, plus plenty of stories by children talking about what they were all doing the day their mother died. But the emphasis on presents being only for children at Christmas was still strong. Prince Albert stated flat out that he thought presents were great for adults as well as children. Hint, hint. People were torn between their natural social crawling response and thinking it was some crazy German thing. Still, if this home cooking is all too much of a faff, maybe if you found yourself in Victorian Britain, you might just like to buy some sweets instead. Perhaps a nice mint or humbug. Why not? Victorian sweets were incredible. To produce them required long hours and hard work. The Victorians invented many of the essentials to kickstart the modern sweet industry. The candy press in 1847 to create sweet moulds and the revolving steam pan in 1851 to transform sugar use and sweet making from a luxury item for the rich to an industrial process that made sweets available to the poor. The two innovations meant that a sweet production workshop could be run by two staff instead of a team of highly trained confectionery chefs. Of course, there were one or two problems. Many would-be sweet makers were poor. The oldest sweet shop in England, which is imaginatively called the oldest sweet shop in England, was opened in 1827, according to their website. Quote, in the historic and vibrant town of Patterley Bridge, in Nidderdale, part of the Yorkshire Dales, the oldest sweet shop began selling sweets and luxury chocolates, such as boiled sweets, toffees, herbal and spicy sweets originally prepared, boiled and made within the sweet shop, frequented by local mill owners, cry workers and labourers building the local reservoirs, and of course children, all spending their hard-earned half-penny in the shop. Our shop in Pateley became a cornerstone of the local community, a town bustling with busy mills, quarries and breweries at the height of the Industrial Revolution. With the Industrial Revolution came the invention of solid chocolate. J.S. Fry's and Sons and Cadbury's led the way with the first British chocolate bars, while many sweets we take for granted today were invented and quickly became marvels of the new era in confectionery. The oldest sweet shop, being a pioneer in selling confectionery, must have seemed like Willy Wonka alchemy, with its jars of sweets and strong boiled sweets and toffee smells. It is no wonder the oldest sweet shop became popular and world-renowned. End quote. Notice it was in the prosperous industrial north where workers began to have enough income to support buying the odd suite. In 1847, one of the great triumphs of modern English invention was given to the world. J.S. Fry and company invented the solid chocolate bar. Not the Swiss, not the Americans, not the French, the British. British industry was reaching not just into the mundane, but into the areas of cooking and luxury. Still, a Willy Wonka factory, Fry's was not. Fry was a staunch Quaker, and his workers were expected to start the day with a hymn and reflection. The company soon began experimenting with more expensive ingredients for a more deluxe range. Those without access to family fortunes and the Quaker finance system, startup costs could be high and profit margins wafer thin. Still, Whatever the quality of the product, the children loved them. Of course, for some sweet makers, the full cost of sugar was too high, so products had to be padded with what was known as daft, made from calcium powder or Derbyshire limestone. That's something that still happens today, as the Guardian newspaper points out, quote, Manufacturers who need their tomato sauce to be thick enough not to leak out of its plastic carton and just a little bit glossy so it doesn't look matte and old after several days in the fridge, was sold the advantages of microlyse, a cost-effective 
speciality starch that gives smooth, shiny surface and high viscosity, or pulpies, Tate & Lyons Tomato Pulp Extender. Based on modified starch, it gives the same pulpy visual appearance as an all tomato sauce while using 25% less tomato paste, end quote. I could give a lot more examples of modern food adulteration, including gelatine and cancer-causing seaweed derivatives in some chocolate desserts, or that glorious time we found out that some Tesco, Burger King, Aldi and co-op meat dishes had horse meat in them rather than beef to bulk them out, which led to uncovering the great European horse meat scandal of 2013 with its multi-millionaire fraudsters, dodgy documents and corporate corruption. But I won't disturb your digestion. In the city of Bradford in 1858, a well-known and liked sweet seller named William Hardacre, but called by everyone Humbug Billy, needed to order some humbugs. He turned to his supplier, the local confectioner, Joseph Neal. Neal made humbugs out of water, gum, sugar and flavourings. But he added some daft to stretch the sugar a bit further and improve his meagre profits. To get the daft, he put in an order at the local pharmacy. He sent his lodger to the shop who spoke to the assistant. The pharmacist wasn't well, so left things to his assistant to sort out, just telling him to grab the daft from a cask in the shop attic. Daft secured, the manufacturing process could spring into action. No need to get the chef to make individual sweets, limiting them to the rich. Now the poor could enjoy some luxury. Humbug Billy wasn't totally happy with the colour of the sweets, so negotiated a discount, and the customers flocked in. Bradford was dirty, smoke-filmed, lacking sanitation, and had a wholly inadequate police force. Sweets were a little break from the horror, and thanks to industrial technology and zero food regulations, anyone could make and sell them. Billy set up his market stall, tasted a humbug, and then went home for a break, as he wasn't feeling well. Luckily, or unluckily, other people handled his stall and the humbugs sold to hundreds of people, not just from Bradford, but visitors as well. Within hours, people began to fall violently ill and die. The daft used in fairly significant quantities was not chalk or limestone, but arsenic powder. On Sunday morning, the police got the first reports. Two dead children. They essentially shrugged. Lots of poor children died suddenly. This was Bradford. Then more reports of violent illness filtered in. People wondered if it was a plague or cholera. A report came in of the deaths of two middle-class children of the Bowens family with no reason to suspect illness. A detective was dispatched as alarm grew. He soon discovered that anyone in the household who had eaten a humbug was violently ill. The detective quickly tracked the humbug seller down and found him desperately ill. Then he went on to the pharmacy. He waited for three hours, determined to speak to the supplier of the daft. He started to question the assistant and got the story of the order. He inspected the barrel of the daft when the pharmacist arrived and asked why they were so interested in the arsenic. The horrified detective arrested the assistant and rushed back to the local nick. Officers were told to get out on the streets with notices and raise the alarm. Many city dwellers were awoken by constables frantically ringing bells in the street. Notices were plastered over every wall, and people were told to spread the word to avoid the lethal sweets. To add to the policemen's burdens, many of the humbugs were sold as part of sweet selection bags. Doctors inundated with poisoned patients. Dr John Henry Bell, for instance, ended up treating 60 patients for arsenic poisoning, which would be called a critical incident, even in today's medical system. The list of dead grew rapidly. The youngest was Mark Green, aged one and a half. Then, little Adela Lee, aged two. Imagine the horror of the parents 
always probably blaming themselves for the rest of their lives, even if it wasn't their fault. Many adults also died, leaving grieving husbands, wives and children. Old people were included in the grim tally, but it was children with their smaller body mass that were most at risk. The magistrates quickly began the judicial inquiry. It was a worrying story. They soon worked out that just an ounce of the sweets had contained enough arsenic to kill 12 people. It became clear the arsenic cask was completely unlabeled, common practice at the time. The magistrates referred the case to the York Assizes for a manslaughter case against chemist Charles Hodson, the assistant William Goddard and the sweet manufacturer Joseph Neal. A grand jury was directed by the judge to discharge Goddard and Neal. Only the pharmacist would go to full trial, but at the trial itself, the judge dismissed the case on the basis that the evidence showed the defendant was ill at the time and had properly told his assistant to supply harmless daft. It was considered pure human error, outside the control of the pharmacist. The people of Bradford were essentially left to accept that as far as the law was concerned, this was a series of tragic mistakes. Life was cruel, get over it. In total, 20 people died and over 200 or more were violently ill. The public seemed more furious about the light it shone on the issue of food adulteration than the lack of criminal convictions in this instant. They thought they were buying food, not food plus whatever someone had decided to shove in it to improve their profits. Parliament for once moved reasonably swiftly. They were unhappy with two problems, the lax security around poisons and food being adulterated, especially with this following on from the recent mustard and coffee scandals. Poison storage and sales were suddenly going to be regulated. A parliamentary committee was set up in 1855 and in 1860 the Food Adulteration Bill became law. Many of the MPs had been furious at this intervention in the market. If people didn't want poisoned sweets, they were free to choose other sellers. The market would soon put dodgy sellers out of business, or so they claimed. This was surprising, since it flew in the face of pretty much everything everyone knew about how the Victorian economies worked. It wasn't like Humbug Billy was the only person out there who was selling adulterated food, and with no food labelling, customers couldn't tell the difference between a dodgy salesman and a good one. Richard Archer Wallington was a solicitor and chairman of the local board of health. You might expect his testimony to the committee to be pro-regulation, but in fact he said, quote, there is no understanding between the public and the seller that the seller shall give you what you ask for. Neither do I think it beneficial that it should be so, end quote. One free marketeer tried to kill the bill on the basis of, quote, it's paternalistic an invasive nature, end quote. He was slapped down by MPs reminding him about Bradford and the mass poisoning. Still, this wasn't the end of arsenic, not by a long way. Arsenic poisoning is as much a part of the Victorian world and a Victorian Christmas as Dickens. Author James Wharton is right to call it the arsenic century. It was everywhere, including in some medicines like the immensely popular Dr. Fowler's solution. It is suspected by some that Darwin nearly accidentally killed himself by overuse of Fowler's solution, which he used to treat his shaking hand. Worryingly, one of Queen Victoria's doctors was a huge fan of Fowler's poisonous medicine. Imagine how history could have changed if Darwin or Victoria had died early from arsenic poisoning. Luckily, arsenic was no longer going to be allowed in food, at least not legally. Little comfort to the hundreds poisoned, up to 600 in the year 1900, in Manchester, when a new brewing method for beer accidentally created arsenic, which was mixed with contaminated dust from the brewery walls and the heating system to raise the arsenic level in the beer. 
just five pints of beer could be dangerous, which was the typical daily intake for a working man of the time. Nor was arsenic the only thing being added to food, from lead dyes to chalk dust to copper. You never knew. Even the venerable Cross and Blackwell Company was at it and were forced, after a scandal, to stop adding copper to food. They trumpeted this as a triumph of their commitment to high standards when actually they were trying to get ahead of the PR disaster. Perhaps now you can begin to see why Mrs Beaton and people like her were so important. By standardising recipes and making the ingredients easy to identify, Victorian women could cook at home and know they were eating safely. Then when they shopped, they could start to ask more probing questions about what exactly was in the mince pies. The Foreign Office in the 1870s began to explore food purity as a British branding exercise to give an advantage in trade over other nations with lower standards. Buying British could mean buying real food, daft and arsenic, deliberately excluded. That's really a story for another episode. Perhaps then I should give you a safe recipe for humbugs. These are based on a Harry Potter recipe I found at Alison's Wonderland Recipes website, which does recipes based on famous works of literature. Please do visit it for more ideas. Ingredients. One cup sugar, one third of a cup of water, a quarter of a teaspoon of cream of tartar, quarter of a teaspoon of mint or peppermint extract. Mint will be much milder and probably works better for this. Five drops of gel food colouring of your choice, perhaps pastel green. You'll also need a candy thermometer and a pair of clean rubber gloves. This makes approximately 12 candies. Instructions. Liberally spray an 8-inch bread pan with cooking oil and set aside. Add the water, sugar and cream of tartar to a medium-sized saucepan. Stirring constantly, cook the ingredients over a medium to high heat until the sugar dissolves and the mix begins to boil. After inserting a candy thermometer into the saucepan, reduce the heat to medium and continue to cook the mixture, stirring occasionally. When the mixture reaches 260 degrees, turn off the heat and stir in the food colouring. Pour the mixture into the prepared bread pan. Let the mixture rest 3.5 to 4 minutes. Don't get the resting period wrong. If you get it out too soon, you get string. If you wait too long, you get a chance of hard sugar stuck to the bottom. My note, a Victorian worker who got this wrong would of course be fired for wasting the owner's profits and would naturally have to either go to the army or the workhouse. I'll let you off that one though if yours goes wrong. When the candy starts to become too stiff to work with, lay the rope on a sheet of wax paper Spray the blade of some kitchen scissors with cooker oil and shape accordingly. What you do next depends on what shape you want your candies to have. You can pull the rope thin and snip straight pieces or you can take it a step further and quickly roll the straight pieces into little balls. Personally, it is up to you what shape you make with them. Make them into balls, into twists, into little sticks or cut them into fish shapes, which was very popular in Victorian times. I hope you've enjoyed our journey through some Christmas sweet treats. You can see why standardised food preparation, as endorsed by Mrs Beaton, was so crucial. Whether you've got a modern mince pie, or you've been brave and gone through this section a few times to make some humbugs, I do hope you enjoyed it. I'll put the recipes up on the website. I admit today's episode might have been a bit morbid in places, but that's just how the Victorians liked it. I know. How about a nice story to finish off? Put your feet up and enjoy your sweets. Now it's time for one of our traditional Christmas ghost stories. The story you're about to hear appeared in the Belgravia magazine in January 1868. Wanted, sir, a patient. It was in the early days of my professional career when patients were scarce and fees scarcer. And though I was in the act of sitting down to my chop, and had promised myself a glass of steaming punch afterwards, in honour of the Christmas season, 
I hurried instantly into my surgery. I entered briskly, but no sooner did I catch sight of the figure, standing, leaning against the counter, than I started back with a strange feeling of horror, which for the life of me I could not comprehend. I shall never forget the ghastliness of that face, the white horror stamped upon every feature, the agony which seemed to sink the very eyes beneath the contracted brows. It was awful to me to behold, accustomed as I was to scenes of terror. You seek advice, I began with some hesitation. No, I am not ill. You require then... Hush, he interrupted, approaching more nearly and dropping his already low murmur to a mere whisper. I believe you are not rich. Would you be willing to earn a thousand pounds? A thousand pounds? His words seemed to burn my very ears. I should be very thankful. If I could do so honestly, I replied with dignity. What is the service you require of me? A peculiar look of intense horror passed over the white face before me. The blue-black lips answered firmly to attend a deathbed. A thousand pounds? To attend a deathbed? Where am I to go then? Whose is it? Mine. The voice in which this was said sounded so hollow and distant that involuntarily I shrank back. Yours? What nonsense! You're not a dying man. You are pale. You appear perfectly healthy. You... Hush, he interrupted. I know all this. You cannot be more convinced of my physical health than I am myself. Yet I know that before the first clock tolls the first hour after midnight, I shall be a dead man. But, he shuddered slightly, but stretching out his hand to commanding me, motioned me to be silent. I am but too well informed of what I affirm, he said quietly. I have received a mere mysterious summons from the dead. No mortal aid can avail me. I am as doomed as the wretch on whom the judge has passed sentence. I do not come either to seek your advice or to argue the matter with you, but simply to buy your services. I offer you a thousand pounds to pass the night in my chamber and witness the scene which takes place. The sum may appear to you extravagant, but I have no further need to count the cost of any gratification, and the spectacle you will have to witness is no common sight of horror. The words, strange as they were, were spoken calmly enough, but as the last sentence dropped slowly from the livid lips, an expression of such wild horror again passed over the stranger's face that, in spite of the immense fee, I hesitated to answer. You fear to trust the promise of a dead man. See here and be convinced, he exclaimed, and the next instant, on the counter between us, lay a parchment document, and following the indication of that white muscular hand, I read the words, and, to Mr. Frederick Reed of 14 High Street Alton, I bequeath the sum, £1,000, for certain service rendered to me. I have had that drawn up within the last 24 hours, and I signed it an hour ago. In the presence of competent witnesses, I am prepared, you see. Now, do you accept my offer, or not? My answer was to walk across the room and take down my hat, and then lock the door of the surgery, communicating with the house. It was a dark, icy cold night, and somehow the courage and determination which the sight of my own name, in connection with a thousand pounds, had given me, flagged considerably as I found myself hurried along through the silent darkness by a man whose deathbed I was about to attend. He was grimly silent, but as his hand touched mine, in spite of the frost, it felt like a burning coal. On we went, tramp, tramp through the snow, on, on, till even I grew weary, and at length my appalled ear struck the chimes of a clock tower. Whilst close at hand, I distinguished the snowy hillocks of a churchyard. Heavens, was this the awful scene of which I was to be the witness, to take place veritably among the dead? Eleven, groaned the doomed man. Gracious God, but two hours more, and that ghostly messenger will bring the summons. Come, come, for mercy's sake, let us hasten. 
There was but a short road separating us now from a wall which surrounded a large mansion, and along this we hastened until we reached a small door. Passing through this, in a few minutes, we were stealthily ascending the private staircase to a splendidly furnished apartment, which left no doubt the wealth of its owner. All was intensely silent, however, through the house, and about this room in particular, there was a stillness that, as I gazed around, struck me as almost ghastly. My companion glanced at the clock on the mantel shelf and sank into a large chair by the side of the fire with a shudder. Only an hour and a half longer, he muttered. Great heaven, I thought I had more fortitude. This horror unmans me. Then, in a fiercer tone, and clutching my arm, he added, You mock me. You think me mad, but wait till you see. Wait till you see. I put my hand on his wrist, for there was now a fever in his sunken eyes which checked the superstitious chill which had first been gathering over me and made me hope then that, after all, my first suspicion was correct and that my patient was but the victim of some fanciful hallucination. Mock you, I answered soothingly, far from it. I sympathise intensely with you, and would do you much aid if I could. You require sleep. Lie down and leave me to watch. He groaned, but rose, and began throwing off his clothes, and, watching my opportunity, I slipped a sleeping powder, which I had managed to put in my pocket before leaving the surgery, into the tumbler of claret that stood beside him. The more I saw, the more I felt convinced that it was a nervous system of my patient which required attention, and it was with sincere satisfaction I saw him drink the wine and then stretch himself on the luxurious bed. Ha! I thought, as the clock struck twelve, and instead of a groan, the deep breathing of the sleeper sounded throughout the room. You won't receive any summons tonight, and I may make myself comfortable. Noiselessly, therefore, I replenished the fire, poured myself out a large glass of wine, and drawing the curtains so that the firelight should not disturb the sleeper, I put myself in a position to follow his example. How long I slept, I do not know, but suddenly I aroused with a start and as ghostly a thrill of horror as I ever remember to have felt in my life. Something, what I knew not, seemed near, something nameless, unutterably awful. I gazed around. The fire emitted a faint blue glow, just sufficient to enable me to see that the room was exactly the same as when I fell asleep, but that the long hand of the clock wanted but five minutes of the mysterious hour, which was to be the death moment of the summoned man. Was there anything in it, then? Any truth in the strange story he had told? The silence was intense. I could not even hear a breath from the bed, and I was about to rise and approach, when again that awful horror seized me, and at the same moment my eye fell upon the mirror opposite the door, and I saw, great heaven, that awful shape, that ghastly mockery of what had been humanity. Was it really a messenger from the buried, quiet dead? It stood there, in visible death clothes, but the awful face was ghastly with corruption, and the sunken eyes gleamed forth a green glassy glare, which seemed a veritable blast from the infernal fires below, to move or utter a sound in that hideous presence was impossible, and like a statue I sat and saw that horrid shape move slowly towards the bed. What was the awful scene enacted there? I do not know. I heard nothing except a low, stifled, agonised groan, and I saw the shadow of that ghastly messenger bending over the bed. Whether it was some dreadful but wordless sentence its breathless lips conveyed as it stood there, I do not know. But for an instant, the shadow of a claw-like hand from which the third finger was missing extended over the doomed man's head. Then, as the clock struck one clear, silvery stroke, it fell, and a wild shriek rang through the room. A death shriek. I am not given to fainting. 
I certainly confess that the next ten minutes of my existence was a cold blank, and even when I did manage to stagger to my feet, I gazed around, vainly endeavouring to understand the chilly horror which still possessed me. Thank God the room was rid of that awful presence. I saw that, so gulping down some wine, I lighted a wax taper and staggered towards the bed. Ah, how I prayed that, after all, I might have been dreaming, and that my own excited imagination had but conjured some hideous memory of the dissecting room, but one glance was sufficient to answer that. No, the summons had indeed been given and answered. I flashed the light over the dead face, swollen, convulsed still with the death agony, but suddenly I shrank back, even as I gazed. The expression of the face seemed to change. The blackness faded into a deathly whiteness. The convulsed features relaxed. And even as if the victim of that dread apparition still lived, a sad, solemn smile stole over the pale lips. I was intensely horrified, but still I retained sufficient self-consciousness to be struck professionally by such a phenomenon. Surely there was more than some supernatural agency in all this. Again I scrutinised the dead face, and even the throat and chest, but with the exception of a tiny pimple on one temple beneath a cluster of hair, not a mark appeared. To look at the corpse, one would have believed that this man had indeed died by a visitation of God, peacefully, whilst sleeping. How long I stood there, I know not, but time enough to gather my scattered senses and to reflect that, all things being considered, my own position would be very unpleasant if I was found thus unexpectedly in the room of a mysteriously dead man. So, noiselessly as I could, I made my way out of the house. No one met me on the private staircase. The little door opening into the road was easily unfastened, and thankful indeed was I feeling again the fresh wintry air as I hurried along that road by the churchyard. There was a magnificent funeral soon in that church, and it was said that the young widow of the buried man was inconsolable. Then rumours got abroad of a horrible apparition which had been seen on the night of the death, and it was whispered the young widow was terrified and insisted upon leaving the splendid mansion. I was too mystified with the whole affair to risk my reputation by saying what I knew, and I should have allowed my share in it to remain forever buried in oblivion had I not suddenly heard that the widow, objecting to many of the legacies in that last will of her husband, intended to dispute it on the score of insanity. And then there gradually arose the rumour of his belief in having received a mysterious summons. On this, I went to the lawyer and sent a message to the lady that, as the last person who had attended her husband, I undertook to prove his sanity, and I besought her to grant me an interview, which I would relate as strange and horrible a story as ear had ever heard. That same evening, I received an invitation to go to the mansion. I was ushered immediately into a splendid room, and there, standing before the fire, was the most dazzlingly beautiful young creature I had ever seen. She was very small, but exquisitely made. Had it not been for the dignity of her carriage, I should have believed her a mere child. With a stately bow, she advanced. Not to speak. I come upon a strange and painful errand, I began, and then I started for I happened to glance full into her eyes, and from them down to the small right hand grasping the chair, the wedding ring was on that hand. I conclude that you are the Mr. Reed who requested permission to tell me some absurd ghost story, and whom my late husband mentions here. And as she spoke, she stretched out her left hand towards something, but what I knew not and my eyes were fixed on that hand. Horror, white and delicate it might have been, but it was shaped like a claw, and the third finger was missing. 
One sentence was enough after that. Madam, all I can tell you is that the ghost who summoned your husband was marked by a singular deformity. The third finger of the left hand was missing, I said sternly, and the next instant I had left that beautiful, sinful presence. That will was never disputed. The next morning, too, I received a cheque for a thousand pounds, and the next news I heard of the widow was that she had herself seen that awful apparition and had left the mansion immediately. Well, aren't Victorian Christmases a little melodramatic? I think it might be time to go and put my feet up by the fire. Maybe have a mint humbug. Thank you for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at ageofvictoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. And the show also has a Facebook page and group. Just search for The Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. It takes less time than making a cup of coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes. Or you can go to patreon.com and search for The Age of Victoria podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.